Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Our current short series, titled Elijah, A Man of Conviction, continues with this lesson, taken from 1 Kings chapter 18, and brings us vast information on the life and times of Elijah, a man who is in very close touch to God. And this lesson, which class teacher Doug Brady has titled, After the Fire, continues to show the condition of Elijah's life and how he is rated so highly by God himself. You will understand that as we listen to the lesson. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. Our class continues to grow as Doug digs deeply into the scriptures and makes things understandable as we study the Bible. And we love having visitors and look forward to your visit if you are in the area. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. We're going to talk about after the fire, but we're going to look at things today. You'd think you're in law school because I'm going to ask maybe 40 questions, and we're going to try and get answers to them. No, but there's a few of those sprinkled in, but I'm not going to tell you when they're coming. There will be some of them we may not for certain know the answers to. And we'll have to think about it and maybe ponder those questions over the week. Before we start and go any farther, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend together today. And I pray that you will speak through me and that I will be listening to you, that I will be speaking for you, and I will not say things that you don't want said and if there's an idea that you have that you want me to explain, just put it in my heart and help me to listen to you and be obedient. I thank you for the time that we can spend studying your word and how, how much uh, I love being able to study your word and share things and how much people encourage me by saying that they love hearing it. And so I pray that today will be a time of worship in your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, after the fire fell on the sacrifice of Elijah, I want to ask this question. In what condition would you have found the people after the fire? The people of Israel who were there on Mount Carmel. What, what condition would they have been in? What? Ecstatic. Ecstatic? Who said that? On their face. Tom, did you say that? Bob. Let's look at the passage. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, Yahweh, he is Elohim. Yahweh, he is Elohim. Now, Les, can you tell me why I know that Lord is best translated Yahweh? It's all caps. And we know that God, when it only has a capital G, 
But a little O-D is what? Elohim. If you see Lord with just a capital L, what is that? Adonai. When the Masoretic scribes were putting vowel points on the Hebrew letters, which had just been consonants before, they didn't know how to pronounce yud heh vav heh which is Yahweh. They didn't know how to pronounce it. Nobody pronounced it for a thousand years. So they just took the vowel points from Adonai, put them on that tetragrammaton, yud heh vav heh and it came out Jehovah. But, you know, that's like me calling Chris Charles. Why would a good friend call him Charles? His name's not Charles. It's Chris or Christopher. Why would I call God Jehovah? That's not his name. It just, and people who've been trained. But, all right. So I want us to look for just a second at the nature of man. And I want us to see some things. How many parts does a man have? Main central parts of the person. Three. There's physical part, a body. There's a soul. And there's a spirit. Now, some people would tell you, oh, Doug, you're wrong. There's only two parts. Two parts. A soul and a spirit are really the same thing. Sometimes they say soul. Sometimes they say spirit, but they're the same. You don't ever find all three together. You just don't. I remember hearing a recording uh, Chuck Bodo made for me of a professor of Bible down at Baylor who said exactly that. Yes, it is. He said that. Uh, now, would you find that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? Maybe verse 23? All right. And also in the recording, you hear Chuck stand up. What about this? And then he read, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's what it says. You notice there's an and between each one of them. Normally you might say body, soul, and spirit. But in Greek... If you want to emphasize the reality of what you're saying, you use that little pronoun chi, and, and, and. And so that is exactly what, so there is three. They want to tell you something different because they don't like the idea of saying people who when they're born are spiritually dead. Liberals, progressives, moderates, Baylorites. No, I didn't mean the last part. (laughs) Well, yeah, I did. But anyway, forgive me. You know, I had two sisters and a wife that went to Baylor. So, you know. Pardon me? What was the reference again? 1 Thessalonians 5.23. That's not in the notes. You see, I'm finding stuff as I go along. And Anyway, what we need to understand is this. They don't want to say you're spiritually dead. But you are spiritually dead when you're born. You're born again spiritually when you receive Jesus as your Savior at the moment of justification. Now, the thing to understand is the way God made us, we have a body that's physical, and it communicates with a physical world. It lives in a physical world. What are the main tools or receptacles that help us communicate with the physical world? Five senses. You know... When a baby is born, are their senses 
fully developed? No. It takes time. In the same way, God gave us a spirit to help us communicate in a spiritual world. And he gave us senses, I'm convinced, to help us communicate spiritually, to live in that spiritual world and to deal with it. Spiritual senses. And I think they're similar to our physical senses. Now, the question is, most of you have fully developed your physical senses. Except maybe for Don, but that's, we understand that. <laughs> and we love him anyway. But how well have you developed your spiritual senses? Let's look at this event that just happened, the fire coming down. And let's try to consider the effect on the physical senses first of the people who were present. Okay? Now, as we start to look at that, and as we start to see that, there's some questions that come up. I believe those people were under sensory overload. But they were in a position where all of their senses were working, and it's going to be branded into their memory. Now, I want you to think about this a second. We don't know for certain what came down from heaven when Elijah prayed. Or I'm convinced we don't know, we can't know for certain. He calls it fire, or the writer of 1 Kings calls it fire. But that could be of its effect. It could have been lightning. It could have been some kind of nuclear deal. We just don't know. But we know what it did. It burned up the oxen. It burned up the wood. It burned up the stone which is more than just a normal fire would do. It burned up the ground underneath the stone and evaporated all the water. Now, do you think, let's just use lightning because we're more used to that as an example here. We're not used to a nuclear device doing that specifically without injuring anybody around it. Do you think you would be able to smell the disruption in the air when that lightning struck? Absolutely. Some people have been close to a lightning strike and they can tell you, you can smell it. Obviously, you're going to smell what happened to the oxen and the wood, the stone and the water. So you would smell it. Would you also see something? It would be so bright, probably, that you'd want to close your eyes. And, you know, some people have, I've been in a situation where lightning has struck, not real close to me before. My eyes were closed and I could see the light through my eyelids the change in light. And, you know, it was brilliant. And you've probably never seen anything like that before and the effect, how bright and how brilliant that was. You know, a lightning bolt comes down, it's roughly one billion joules of energy. One billion joules. Now, that, that's not referring to my wife. That's a measurement of energy I wanted you to know. There's only one joules. Now, can you imagine what the sound might have been? Now, you ever heard of the idea when lightning strikes, you count, and how far you count will tell you how far away is when you hear the thunder. You hear the thunder right away if it's coming down right next to you. No wonder they're on the ground on their faces. You begin to see, because the power of God, they are going through, and do you think that the hair on the back of their neck was standing up? Maybe even the, the skin was feeling the sensation of what was going on. It really was sensory overload. It'll be an event in their lives. They will never forget what happened. What's going to be more important as we go through this next passage 
is determining the effect on the spiritual senses of the people. The spiritual senses of the people. And we're going to look at that. But first of all, why the smell of that fire was still in everyone's nostrils. He ordered him to seize all of the prophets of Baal. And Don, what did he have them do to him? What did they do to him? What did he do to him? They killed him. He killed them all. Now, is that religious tolerance? That's the next question. Was he showing religious tolerance there? Not really, but when God says kill him, you need to kill him. When you have a cancer in your country, you need to eliminate it or it's just going to keep growing. Frank has stood up and said, we cannot allow the perversion to continue. We've got to stop it somehow. And it may be, you know, if you go back in 1950s, there was a way to deal with uh, sodomy. Now, you say, well, Elijah killed them all. Yeah, a leader should never ask his followers to do anything he wouldn't do. And so, now the next question I have is, he's gonna, you're going to see he's going to walk over to Ahab. How is he going to appear to Ahab the next time Ahab sees him? Like a butcher. You ever seen a butcher, you know, they're wearing their white coats, but there's blood everywhere they've been cutting. You just can't help it. Especially true in a slaughterhouse where he's, but you know, he already got bloody killing the ox. And now 850 people. So he almost looks like a madman probably coming over there like a Texas chainsaw guy. And I don't ever watch those movies, but you see commercials. So, what do you think, here's the next question I want you, what do you think Ahab is thinking as he sees Elijah walking towards him? Yes, I'm next, I'm in a heck of a lot of trouble here. Now, what do you think that Elijah would say to him, if you were thinking of it? What? No, No, what what do you think Elijah would say to Ahab? As he's going over there, what would, what would you say to him? I would tend to want to say, do you want to be like one of them? If not, you need to change your ways. And you need to get rid of that snake who's constantly encoiled around your neck. Because she needs to be cut out. Now, question that's not up there. Is God going to kill Ahab? Yeah, he is. Not now, but he is. Is he going to kill Jezebel? Yes, he is. I remember teaching this to a couple of uh, young guys, and he said, well, when are we going to get to that part? (laughs) They wanted to get there, but no, not for a while. All right. Now, let's see what he said to him. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 41. Now, Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat, and drink. What is he telling them to do? Go eat lunch. Do you think Ahab expected to hear that from him? Go eat lunch. That's what he's saying. Go up, eat and drink. For there's the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. Yes. Do you think that's what Ahab expected to hear? No. Next question. Why didn't God want Ahab killed? Why is he slain right then? Ah, grace. More time to repent. Now, I want you to think about this just a second. Does God know whether Ahab will repent or not? Does he know that he's not going to repent? Why didn't he just kill him? Give it a chance. Give him a chance. Mark. He wasn't done with him yet.
You're right there. He wasn't done with him yet. It's coming. But you're going to see he's going to give him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Yes, he does. And that's something because you and I both fail frequently, don't we, Don? We really do. I just follow in your footsteps. Uh, I have something to say, but I'd better not say it. And what was the reason that Elijah gave him for going to eat lunch? Why, why did Elijah say, go eat, you should go eat lunch? He's hearing something, right? What is he hearing? Rain. Is it a heavy rain or a light rain? In fact, how does he describe the sound? As a roar. I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but is a roar something that's very slight in sound or something that's very great in sound? Now, Dewey, have you ever heard a lion roar? He's been in Africa. He's been on safaris. He's heard a lion roar. Does that sound tend to carry? Yep. When you hear a lion roar, you'll never forget what it sounds like. It will definitely get your attention. I imagine so. And so what I'm trying to say here is uh, he's talking about something serious sound here. Now, when he tells Ahab that, what do you think Ahab's first thought was? I don't hear anything. I don't hear anything. And the next thing, what do you think he might do after thinking that thought? I don't hear anything like the roar of a giant rainstorm. Look up, right? Because what do we know? There can't, can't be rain without what? Clouds. When he looked up, did he see any clouds? Not one in the sky. Completely Israeli blue up there. That's all. No clouds whatsoever. And so he's, he's coming in there and he's not seeing it. How did Elijah hear it? He heard it with his spiritual sense of hearing. Not yet. We'll get to that. You see, Kim reads ahead. But you, not yet. It's coming. All right. Well, actually, we're in verse 41 is all. So, the very start. Does that kind of thing happen? Are there... You say this is a spiritual sense of hearing. Can you give me any other examples of a spiritual sense being heard or saw or, or Gary? If, if, it's, if it is spiritual, then according to Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 5, it would be by faith. Well, yes, but can you give me an example of somewhere else in the scripture where someone, Elisha. Well, let's look at Elisha here just a second. How about in 2 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 8, I'm going to read this passage so you see it, because you're going to see a spiritual sense here being taken care of. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8, now the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, in such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, beware that you do not pass this place. For the Arameans are coming down there. So what's happening? The king says, we're going to attack Israel. We're going to camp here and get ready. And we're going to ambush them. 
And then Elisha sends word to the king of Israel, don't go near there, they're waiting for you in ambush. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him, thus he warned him so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. So that's a Hebrew way of saying this would happen often. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants together and said to them, will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? He said, there's a spy in our midst. He's telling them everything we're going to do. Will you tell me which one? And one of his servants said, no, my Lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words you speak in your bedroom. That's pretty amazing how God's doing that. So he said, go and see where he is that I may send and take him. And he was told him, behold, he is in in Dothan. So he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. So he said, I'm going to eliminate this spy, even though, you know, uh, it's not one of my people. I got to get rid of this guy. He's telling them all my secrets. So now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? We're in serious trouble. They're going to come get us. They're here for us. We've been telling their secrets. Now we're dead men. But what did Elisha say? So he answered him in verse 16, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now let's stop there just a second. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. How can Elisha make that determination? Well, he can see all of the army that's arrayed from Aramea, right? The Armenians. Arameans, excuse me. He also is seeing something else. He's seeing the armies of God. Is the servant seeing them? But he's seeing them. With what? Physical eyes? Spiritual eyes. The faith that is producing that sight. And so I want you to see it. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray open his eyes that he may see. Did he say open our eyes? No. No, he's already seen them. But he wants his servant to see him. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike the people with blindness, I pray. That is this uh, Syrian army. So he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. And then Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And they brought him to Samaria, to the king. Now, one question that always comes up when I read this. Didn't Elisha lie to them? Yeah, he did. This is war. You know, you don't ever shoot a man in the back. Unless, of course, you're in a war. And then it's kill all the enemy before they kill you. This is something that people need to understand. You know... Has God ever told anybody to say something that, well, what did he tell Samuel when he was going to do the sacrifice and anoint David as king? Just tell him you're going to sacrifice. Don't tell him you're going to anoint David as king. Don't tell him that. You just say, I'm coming to sacrifice. I'm saying that Elisha, when he told those men, this is not the place and this is not the right place to be. I will take you to the right place. That wasn't true. 
They were there seeking him. I don't think God can lie. But he told us Rahab to lie. Yep. There are some times that he, I don't know if he told Rahab, but he blessed Rahab for doing it. And that, this is a hard question to answer. Do I have all the answers to these questions? I don't necessarily do. Tough question. Yeah, but we're in a class who handles tough questions. Yes, ma'am. Samuel, when he calls him, and the priest doesn't hear it, Samuel hears it. You know, he... Only Samuel hears it. Another example of hearing things with spiritual senses. So, I want, I want us to consider this question. Do you remember what God promised at the beginning of this chapter? It's a promise. It was, well, let's see whether you think it was a promise. Let's turn to 1 Kings 18.1. Look what it says. It happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the face of the earth. Is that a promise? Yes. Is there a trigger to that promise? He's got to go. Go and what? He's got to go show himself to Ahab. If he doesn't, will rain come? No. No. If he does, will rain come? Yes. Has he shown himself to Ahab? Now, all the people had to be gathered and brought to Mount Carmel. Has it rained? Not yet. They had all the things that occurred on the sacrifice. Did it rain before that? No. They had to put out the fire, too, you know. But. I want us to look at this a second, because the trigger has occurred, and yet the rain has not fallen yet. Now, keep that in mind. We're going to look further at that in just a second. So Ahab, verse 42, so Ahab went up to eat and drink. He followed the instructions. Yes? In this, uh, to answer Kim's question, the king, the person they were actually looking for was the king of Israel. No. No, they weren't. They were looking for Elisha because he was the one who was telling them the secrets. And he said to take them out. When you look at the beginning of the text, they're looking for the king of Israel. And he can't find the king of Israel, so he goes out looking for Elijah. So uh, Elijah, hey, I'll show you the guy you're looking for. Let's talk about that afterwards because I don't think I would agree with that way of seeing it. But we'll talk. Now, did Ahab follow Elijah's instructions to go up and eat and drink? All right. Did Elijah join him at lunch? No. Well, who's been doing all the work? Elijah. Isn't he hungry? You would think so. But he didn't go eat. Why? He had something to do. You know, you know it, it brings to mind John 4.32 to me. You know, they're up in Samaria and they're going, stopping by the well, and the disciples are going to go eat. When they come back, he's talking to this woman, and they said, aren't you hungry? But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Ah, spiritual food. A spiritual sense again. Do you see that, how that's working? And, of course, nobody had spiritual senses developed like Jesus did. Now, let's go back. But Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. Why was he doing that, Steve? He's praying. He's going to pray. Now, I want you to think about that position. That's not a kneeling position. It's not a sitting position. It's a crouching position. It maybe would best be described as a uh, 
the position of a catcher in baseball as he's getting ready to receive a pitch. In fact, when I was teaching this one time to a group of boys, there was a really hotshot catcher in the class. And I said, can you put yourself in this position? And he couldn't. I don't think I could put myself in this position. To crouch down and then put your head between your knees. But Elisha may have been practicing this at the brook Cherith. And then upstairs at Zarephath. And so he put himself in that position. Now, this is the second prayer in this story of Elijah, right? The first prayer was a public prayer, correct? This one is what kind of prayer? A private prayer. And it was intended to be private. Who did he want to hear this prayer? Now, this is key. That's all? Just God? And his servant. Now, wait a second. Did Elijah have a servant over in Cherith? No. He was all by himself. When he was going from Cherith up to Zarephath, did he have a servant? When he got to Zarephath, did he have a servant? Now he's got a servant. Where did he get this servant? Mark, you know. Where did he get this? Who's this servant? This young man. Possibly that lady's son. That's exactly who it is. That's exactly who it is. He's now the servant of Elijah, the prophet. We don't for certain, but that's the only place he could have gotten it. Circumstantial evidence indicates, and most of the scholars that I read, I was going to say they agree with me, but no, I agree with them. (laughs) So that's where I believe what happened to that boy. He, He was trained by Elijah. Yes. Was Gehazi in that Gehazi that was his servant? No, I think that was Elisha's servant. Now, maybe, but let's go on because I want you to see this prayer. Why did he want the servant to hear it? Why? How does one learn to pray and to pray with great effect? I think the start of it is hearing, hearing someone who really knows how to pray. Someone who really knows how to pray. Well, you say, can you give me an example of that in the scripture? I don't know what it would be like in the Christian standard Bible for kids. But I can tell you what, it's, what it's, it says in my Bible as to that. Turn over to Exodus chapter 33 verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. So everyone could go out there and pray who wanted to. And he came about whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. What's that pillar of cloud? That's the Shekinah glory, and I believe it's Jesus Christ. Now, same one who was the fire in the burning bush. Now, he stood at the entrance of the tent, and Yahweh would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the end of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. And thus the Lord would speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Now, 
does that man know how to pray? Yes. yes, I think he does. And when Moses would return to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. What does that mean? He was there when Moses was praying. So when Moses leaves, what does Joshua do? He stays and prays. He's learning how to pray because he's listening to Moses. And I think that's something important to see. Let me ask you a question or two here in relation to this. Number one, will God bring someone into your life who will not know how to pray as you do and who you could instruct and train? He might do that. Unless, of course, you really don't know how to pray, right? What about you? If you feel, you know, I'm rather inadequate in my prayer life, would you start ask, could you start asking God to show me someone who could teach me to pray? You know, now, this is just me, but if I was looking for someone to ask to pray with me so I could hear them pray and see them pray, I'd ask Mark Strickland. He knows how to pray. Yes. You're not going to disagree with that, are you? No, I'm not prepared to do that. But I am prepared to say this. If you want to learn how to pray, read your Bible. There's a lot of things in there that the Bible says. You can turn that into prayer. It's on every verse of the Bible. I mean, you know, what we're doing right now, we're, we have to dig a little bit. But, I mean, you can see that, you know... Kim, I agree with you completely. There's nothing that makes a prayer more powerful than praying the Word of God, especially the promises of God. And I think that's what Elijah is praying right now. You told me it's time for the rain. And so I'm praying that you send the rain. And he's praying the promises back. Donna. I remember that he had spent an awful lot of time alone nobody else to. He's been practicing. He, he talks to God. He knows how to do it. He's been doing it. Now I want to show you something. Let's go back to this verse 1 of chapter 18. Now, is this a promise? There are certain kinds of promises that God makes. Some are conditional. Some are unconditional. Anybody give me an example of an unconditional promise? Abraham. The covenant of Abraham. Maybe you go back farther when he said, I will never destroy the earth again with water. Now, I didn't say I'll never destroy the earth again, but never with water. It was a promise. Unconditional. Doesn't matter what we do, how evil or wicked we become. But there are also conditional promises. Is this promise a conditional promise or an unconditional? Conditional. He has to show himself to Ahab. Now, also there's promises that are individual promises versus corporate. For example, Noah's promise, it was corporate, right? It was to everyone. I'm telling the whole world, I'm not destroying you again with water. Now, what about Abraham's covenant? Who was it a promise to? Well, to Israel, the people that were, he was going to the nation he was going to create. Abraham really didn't get to see the fulfillment of his promise, did he, Don? But he's made that promise. In fact, has God ever given them all of the land he promised them? From the Euphrates to the river of Egypt? No. no. Will he? Yeah. Yes, he will. Now, there's also promises that are individual to a person. Not just, they're not corporate. They're not to a group. They're just into, what about this one? Who's this promise to? It's the promise to Elijah. That's an individual promise. 
And you need to see that. Now, here again, let's ask this question. If Elijah had satisfied the condition, why did he have to pray? He's satisfied the condition. Why does he have to pray? This is something that I know there's some people going to be in here. Maybe he's going to disagree with me, but I am confirmly convinced of this principle. And let's, let's look at it, the start of it. Prayer is the key that unlocks the promises of God. If you want to unlock a promise, you pray. Now, does God constantly test us? Why does he test us? I think mostly to grow us. To grow us. Now, does Elijah, the first time he prays for God fulfilling this promise, does God answer? Does he the second time? Does he the third time? The fourth? The fifth? The sixth? Why not? Trust me, Elijah. I made you a promise. It's good. Things are moving. You just can't see them yet. Yes? When you say, God, you keep praying, but if God told you, look, I'm going to do this, do you keep praying? Yes, you do. That's what Elijah did. There's four principles here I want you to see in relation to, to this, or, or sub-principles I want you to see in relation to this very important principle that prayer unlocks the promises of God. Number one, when you're praying for a promise of God, first, be sure that your prayer is based on the Word of God. You know, I actually heard someone say, you know, I was praying about the promise God gave us. What's that? Well, that God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> that's not a promise of God. That's something man made up. <laughs> but that's what they said. So be sure that your prayer is based on the word of God. Secondly, be sure that your prayer is not from carnal or wrong motives. God's not going to answer a prayer that's from the wrong motives. Number three, keep on asking and looking for an answer in faith till it comes. If it's a promise of God, you keep on asking, just like Elijah did. Now, when you start asking, and if he doesn't answer right away, what do you have to do? Yeah, but you also have to wait. Now, I don't know about you all. I don't like to wait. But many times I miss out when I'm waiting because I don't realize this fourth principle. This fourth principle. Ask the Lord to teach you what he wants during the time that you're waiting for an answer. God wants to teach you something. There's there. He was teaching Elijah here. He teaches us while we're waiting. What was he doing in Zarephath? Waiting. What was God doing? Teaching him. Preparing his servant. What was he doing in Cherith? Waiting. And what was God doing? Teaching him. Why are you making me wait? Don't ask that question. Instead, say, what do you want me to learn? Well, mount with wings like eagles, renew their strength. That's the time when you grow the most, Marist, is it not? It's not when you're calling fire down. It's when you're waiting. All right, let's go on. What about this position? Is position in which we pray really important? I'm going to say not necessarily. All right, well, let's talk about that. And if you, after a second, you still don't, then you and Gary talk about it after class, please. <laughs> but the position in which you pray should be an indication of your heart attitude. 
Position with the wrong attitude is worse than no position at all. Sometimes you don't have position. Sometimes you, you can't. When Nehemiah approached the king, and the king said, why is your face? He'd say, just a second, I got to go in the other room and kneel down. No, he had to pray right then in his head, in his heart, say, Lord, be with me and help me to answer this correctly. When Hananiah, Mishael, and Nazariah were standing before Nebuchadnezzar, they were praying with the golden image at their back and the, the, uh, them lighting the pilot light on the furnace. But the fact is, position is not as important as heart attitude. Because a lot of people put themselves in a position of prayer, but they don't have the right heart attitude. And sometimes we tend to think, well, if I'm in this position, I, I obviously have the right attitude. Not a ritual. Gary. The Hebrews, though, the they gained approval by their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. So, so it's better, like you say, to have a heart attitude, or actually a faith attitude. You might not receive the promise, but you, you have gained approval. True. And does God ask you to be successful? He asks you to be faithful. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's move on. Because I don't, I don't want to miss a, the best things going to come at the end here. So verse 43, he sent his servant, go up and look towards the sea. So when he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go back seven times. So seven times he sent the servant to look. You know, imagine what the servant's thinking here. Is he just not going to accept no as an answer? When he gets to the seventh time, he thinks God to say, how about seven more? <laughs> Because Elijah demonstrated the characteristic of non-compromising life, which is unhindered persistence. He's, he's going to be unhinderedly persistent in his prayer. Now, here's a question I don't know for sure the answer to. Would God have answered his prayer for rain if Elijah had stopped after the first negative report? Would he? Maybe he would have. Let's look at the next question. Would God have answered his prayer for rain if God had considered Elijah's killing the prophets to be the wrong thing to do? I don't think so. By answering his prayer, he's approving what Elijah did. Because Elijah took 850 lives. Rainy? What's the significance? We see that often in the Bible, 777. Isn't that I think that God was communicating something with this seven, but I didn't have time to... To really come up with an answer to that. Les? Didn't he ask him to go uh, eight times really the first time and then go back seven times? No, I think it was seven. Seven is the number of completion. Well, that's true. Find that in other places. Naaman was told to dip seven times. And nothing was going to happen. But he was told ahead of time seven times. Elijah was not mentioned that. But it may be that Elijah was so close to God. So let's look. In verse 44 came about on the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And, uh, and he said, Go up and say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot, go down, so that the heavy shower does not stop you. So what did he, did, did Elijah, now did Elijah go tell that to Ahab? No, he sent the servant to do it and tell him, You need to get going or you're not going to make it. Because the shower, the rainstorm is coming. He stays up there where he is, sends the boy. Why would he stay there? Right. For what, in what kind of prayer? 
Thanksgiving. Exactly right. Now you say, wait a second. The sky's completely blue, and then off over the sea, the, what sea is he looking at? Mediterranean, right? Can he see all the way across to the rock of Gibraltar? No. But he sees, and what does he say he saw this cloud do? It looked like, he said, it came up from the sea. Like it's coming up from the sea. Did it come up from the sea? No. Now I can tell you, this week, Julie and I were in two different places. One place where we could look over the Gulf of Mexico and we could see the sunset. And by the way, the sun setting over the Gulf of Mexico is beautiful. Especially when you have someone special next to you. Very good. You like that, huh? <laughs> On the other side... We were looking out over the Atlantic. Now, can you see the sunset on the Atlantic? No. no. You're seeing it rise. Now, what happens? It's kind of dark, and then you start to see light. But has the sun risen yet? No. But all of a sudden, you can see a little crescent of the sun. Where's it coming from? It's coming up from the sea. And pretty soon, you can see half of it. And then you can see the whole sun. And it's there. It came up out of the sea. Or that's what it looked like. Now, we all know that it didn't come out of the sea. But that's the description of it. Now, when you first see just the glow or the light, but you don't see any part of the sun, what do you know? It's coming. You got this little cloud that was coming up the size of a man's hand, but he couldn't see the rest of them yet, could he? Here again, what is he doing? He's seeing with eyes of faith. It, it's coming. And so he starts to do that. He stays up there to thank God for answering his prayer. And what happens? Let's look at the rest. Of it. In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind. And there was a heavy shower. And Ahab rode. I mean, went to Jezreel. And in fact, we'll talk about that in just a minute here. Now... Have you ever seen the, cloud, the sky so full of rain that it's just black with clouds? Mark, you told me something once. How high does it, how thick does a cloud have to be to rain? 6,000 You've got to have 6,000 feet of cloud, 4,000 feet of cloud. 3,800. I think I'm going to go with Strickland. He's a pilot. So, but... To completely block out the sun, you need a lot more than 4,000 feet. Uh, and I think it was just complete black. You couldn't see hardly anything. It, it was like it was at night. And the rain started. Which way is the wind coming from? From the west. How do you know that? Well, of course, he's looking out over the Mediterranean Sea, and that's where it's coming from, and that's west. So he set that wind blowing. God didn't. That's not normally the way it would come uh, in Israel, that rain. It normally would come from the east across the Sea of Galilee. And uh, anyway, so it became black with rain. Now, Ahab again had learned his lesson. He listened to Elijah and he took off. So the question is, to get to Jezreel, how far did he have to go? There was, it's all over the map, but the best research I found was 25. You may think it's 17, that's fine. It, it it really doesn't make that, there's no magic number in 25 or 17, but that's how far it's going to go. But now, is Ahab 
Walking. No, what is he in? Chariot. Now, most war chariots have two horses. How many horses does a king's chariot have? Four. Four horses. The fact is, he's got four horses pulling that chariot, and if you think he's moseying along like a, like a Sunday driver, or is he trying to move? Because he wants one. He doesn't want to get caught in a rainstorm, right? Who knows? There could be another bolt of lightning coming down, and he didn't want it to hit him. So he's taken off, and he's headed towards Jezreel as fast as he can go. Now, let's look at verse 46. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. So what did God do? He reached down, and he took his hand, and he touched Elijah. You see, that spiritual sense of touch. You know, it it reminds me of that song that we really sing. Oh, yeah, there it is. Then the hand of Jesus touched me. And now I'm no longer the same. You think Elijah ever be the same after being touched on Mount Carmel? No. No. Now, let's go back to verse 46. Did God gird up Elijah's loins? Yes, he did. I'm glad to hear you say that, Don. Gave him a heart. Let's go to the next one. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins. Is that God who girded up his loins? Well, how do you know that? Ah, lowercase he, right? Is that definitive? Don, do you think that's definitive? Actually, no. Now you're, you're 0 for 2 here, so hang in there. Yes. Now, here's the thing, and then I'm going to come to you. Well, you might, you, that's normally the rule. You could say, he girded up his loins, meaning the Lord girded up Elijah's loins, having his as, but let's wait just a second, because it's important to see whether that he is capitalized or not is a question for translators. But. Is there anything that can tell us for certain? Yes. Look at the verbs. Girded up, outran. Those are compound verbs. In other words, compound verbs have the same subject. We know for certain God was not outrunning Ahab. Elijah was. So God touched him. Elijah girded. Now, he's wearing a long robe. So he takes the two sides and he pulls them up, and he ties them together around his waist. Then he reaches between his legs, pulls the back part up, and sticks it in there and ties it too. Now he can run, unencumbered by the long dress, shall we say, or robe that he was wearing. So Elijah had to gird up his own loins. And Ahab was taken off. He was moving as fast as he can to catch him and to pass him. Elijah would have had to run faster than any human beings ever run in the history of this world, wouldn't he? To beat four horses? Yes, sir. A man can outrun a horse over a very long distance. Yeah. Or over water. I don't see those two things going together. All this time, he hasn't been working out to run a marathon. No, he hasn't. So God had to give him the super strength to be able to outrun that horse. Horses. You see, it's not one horse. We got four horses here. The horsepower is not one, but four horsepower in that chariot. I don't think there's anybody on earth right now who could outrun 
a four-horse chariot, 25 miles. But that's what he did. What do you think Ahab's thinking is he's, you know, beating those horses, and he looks around, and he's seeing Elijah. And he's gaining on him. And then he's passing him. And aren't you glad that Elijah didn't blow a sandal? But the fact is, I don't know why I said that. He's trying to beat that. Now, has God ever empowered somebody before Elijah physically empowered? Samson, exactly. Does he still do that? In fact, I have some questions I want to ask you about that. Does God, would God still empower someone today? Even at this time in history, physically do something that couldn't be done? I'm, of course, a firm believer in that. You've heard my story before. Well, that's more of a spiritual power, though. I see that a little differently as a force of a physical feat. But yes, I think he does. Now, in fact, the question to ask is, why wouldn't he? If that's what he wanted to do. There's a final thought I want to get to before we finish, and I'm sorry I'm going so long. I want us to reconsider for a second 1 Kings 18.41. Now, Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat, and drink, for there's the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. What was Elijah's primary assignment that he'd been given by God? What was it? Now, look at the, look at the verse. verse seven, chapter 17, verse 1. Elijah said to Ahab, As Yahweh, uh, the Elohim of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, surely there be no dew or rain these years except by my word. He announced the judgment of God. That was his purpose, his primary purpose. But what was the purpose of that judgment? Anybody know? To bring Israel back to God. Exactly right. To bring Israel back to Yahweh and to forsake Baal. To eliminate Baal from the kingdom of Israel. That was his purpose. Now, I want you to see something. Can you imagine what it would be like to say, Lord, bring fire down and burn that up completely? Would that not be amazing feeling? You know, we need to understand that there's a subtle temptation here that we need to see. I want you to see it. Elijah confronts those prophets He calls down fire. This is one of the most awesome displays of God's power recorded anywhere in the Scripture. Elijah very well may have been tempted to dwell on the event. See, calling down fire from heaven is much more spectacular than proclaiming the end of a drought. You know, droughts end, and that's happened a lot of times. No one's ever called fire down from heaven. Success, many times, can distract you from seeking to follow God's will for your life. But in this test, Elijah passed with flying colors. Flying colors. What did he do as soon as he he called the fire down, he consumed the sacrifice, the people responded, he killed the prophets, and then gave Ahab the message, you better go eat and drink. What What was he all about? My purpose is to announce the end of this drought and to bring it about by my prayer. So he said, you go up there because I'm here in the rainstorm. He goes up and prays and does it come? It comes in spades. And it's rained like it hadn't rained before in three and a half years. And I mean water deluged the thirsty land and it drank it all up. So he passed the test. Sometimes 
when God does something spectacular in our life, we say, gee, you know, this is a good time to rest. Or, gee, you know, maybe it's time for a vacation. But there was an unfulfilled promise of God. And Elijah persisted in prayer to avail that promise. But, you know, if you aren't careful and vigilant, watchful, you might become distracted by your uh, successes. Not be about completing the assignment that God's given to you. Will you allow success to destroy what God has for you? I think that uh, when you take a look at the scripture right here, uh, something huge came out of a cloud the size of a man's hand. Yep. And I would say, for me, I mean, the practical application I get from this is that some of the little things that happen in my life, and the little things I pray for, can turn out to be something colossal. Uh, you just don't know. I couldn't agree with Kim Moore what he's saying. Sometimes the little things that we pray for, the little things turn out to be spectacular, uh, awesome, life-changing. Now, something small, a small thing uh, that I always look at is the weather because I have... Because you're a farmer and a rancher. So I need, I'm looking, okay, 6% chance of rain, and that is a huge area that it might fall in. I'm going, wow, but you know what? I, even though it's 6% or 17%, I'm praying that we get rain because we've got dust. I understand. Small thing, Rich, but I'm talking about the little things you pray for. You see a little spark of it happening. I mean, sometimes it turns into something colossal, but like this right here, like that little hand, the cloud inside of your hand. It's what's behind the cloud that's important, isn't it? That little hand. Just add real quickly, when we lived in Raleigh, our small group adopted some Montagnards that came over from Cambodia to refugee camp. And we had like seven, and we had to teach them English. They didn't know English whatsoever, how to read a The 17-year-old was probably one of the more adapted in the group for learning English. The first thing he said to our small group was, teach me how to pray. Teach me how to pray. That's something we should be aware of and, and be willing to be used in. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend today studying these passages, seeing you work in Elijah's life, seeing all the spectacular things that you did in his life. I pray, Father, that you'll tell us that, and teach us, you know, in America we tend to reward success. Now, we're not to be about success. That's something that you can do for us. It's about being faithful. Help us to understand the importance of faithfulness of your servants. And that's what you want. Unhindered persistence in a faithful uh, standing for you. Now, Father, I pray that you'll be with our pastor. And especially with Amy as she seeks to recover. I pray, Father, that you will bring revival to our land. That you will heal our country. And that you will exercise the cancer that we have. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.